0: The complete Moby Dick novel typed on six rolls of toilet paper? The most interesting man alive has the story. I'm Richard.
1: And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We are so happy to have you back with us again for some more incredible stories. And you know what? It looks like we have some new uh, guests with us. Uh, Come on in, folks. Go ahead. Have a seat. Uh, Enjoy yourself. Uh, You've found your way over to some of the most incredible stories you'll ever find on a podcast. And listen, if you like what you hear, well, as a free gift, we're going to give you free episodes every Friday. Compliments of us. No, go ahead. Put away your wallet. There's no need (laughs) to bring out any money it's it's i guarantee you it's completely free we just hope that you enjoy it and if you do like what you hear go ahead and subscribe to our podcast and if you think you know somebody who also might enjoy what you are listening to now well don't be stingy go ahead and share the good news and uh send them our way that being said uh we are back with
0: uh, a familiar guest that we had last week yes indeed gary uh, edward meyer is with us again uh He's the author of the uh, great book, Buying the Bazaar. Buying the Bazaar. And it's a book based on 40 years of adventures with uh, Ripley's Entertainment. And these are the folks who uh, bring you Ripley's, believe it or not. Uh, great book. Uh, I recommend it to anybody who has any kind of interest in the strange, the unusual. Oh, absolutely. And uh, nostalgia, for that matter. So, uh, welcome back uh, to the show, Edward.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Gary and Richard. I uh, feel very privileged to come back for a second
1: shot of me. Yeah, well, well, we really had fun last time. I have to say, <laughs> we really got some great information, uh, yeah. things I didn't even know.
0: But I have to tell you, uh, Edward, there is no way, no way in our episodes are we going to cram 500 pages worth of absolutely fascinating material. We just have a tip of the iceberg that we're touching.
2: Well, a lot happened in 40 years. So <laughs> you know, I, I started writing the book, you know, virtually the day I retired. I would had it in my brain for quite a while formulating it and knew that it was something I wanted to do. And, and it was really a big part of my retiring a little earlier than people expected me to, because I wanted to make sure I got it all down on paper before I couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. like before the memory went or the hands went or the whatever. But, uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. It was roughly a year, uh, in the works and, um, you know, people seem to enjoy it. So happy to always talk about it to anybody that wants to hear about it.
0: Yeah, I certainly did enjoy it. Uh, Edward, um, let's go ahead, uh to, uh, to, uh, let's, uh, turn the clock back to 1980 now. And, um, you actually became the new Robert Ripley. You were Adding massive amounts of artifacts to the Ripley collection, and in 33 years, you are able to add 25,000 new exhibits. And apparently, from what we learned last week, um, most of Robert L. Ripley's original collection had been dispersed through private auctions. So, your collection probably was the collection.
2: Well, I'm I'm not sure. I would say most. That that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but the Ripley collection was you know, publicly auctioned. Anybody could have gone in the auction house and bought a shrunken head or, for that matter, a Picasso painting. Ripley was a big collector of Picasso. Uh, it was all there for anybody who wanted to spend some money. And there was just one guy, John Arthur, who bought enough that he could create the first Ripley's, believe it or not, permanent museum in St. Augustine, Florida. But he thought about 5,000 items. And so the Museum of St. Augustine maybe had half of that when it first opened. He had a second show that you know, I I, I don't want to call it a traveling show because it was, you know, didn't travel very far, but it was in trailers and and went around the northeast, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, and then, you know, stuff that was in a warehouse that could be changed out once in a while. So, you know, roughly $5,000, uh, sorry, 5,000 items is what is the basis of the Ripley's Believe It or Not collection that people will see today in Ripley's Museum. Well, 5,000 items uh, is really only enough for two or three museums. And in 1984... Uh, Alec Rigby, who we talked about a bit last week, sold the company to another Canadian entrepreneur, Jim Patterson of Vancouver, Canada. And Jimmy, one of the first things he said to us as a company was that he wanted to really grow the museum business because uh, he saw that, that, you know, he thought that that's how this company could grow. You know, he wasn't going to get rid of publishing, he wasn't going to get rid of television but he thought that museums was where the real money was. And he looked us in the face and he said he wanted to build two new Ripley museums a year. And we just, you know, jaws hit the ground and went, Oh my God, this guys, you know, <laughs> where's this coming from? Uh, sir, uh, it's impossible. You know, it's a finite collection. We've got 5,000 items and, almost every one of them's already on display. Uh, How are we going to build any new ones? Never mind two new ones a year. And he pointed at me and said, well, why don't you buy some more stuff? And stuff becomes one of my favorite words in my career because it's hard to explain what the Ripley collection is. It literally is a little bit of everything. So stuff seems to work. So I really had no formal training. Um... You know, I had a general interest, uh, fairly well-educated, and suddenly I have the job to be the modern, modern Ripley, uh, modern Marco Polo, ex-Robert Ripley, uh, and I've got to buy museum exhibits. And we went, you know, did a little bit of Las Vegas-style mathematics, how much stuff per square foot, et cetera, et cetera, and came up with a theory that you needed at least 500 items per museum. So if we're going to build two museums a year, Edward's got to buy 1,000 items a year. Now, that's free every day of my life, not just Monday to Friday, but going the Saturdays, Sundays Sundays too. Now, honestly, only a few years did I ever hit that goal, but that was always the goal, 1,000 items every single year. And that went on for thirty-three years. <laughs> oh wow! But the number you quoted twenty-five—I don't know if that's perfectly current or whatever, uh, you know—but it's a pretty good estimate. And that would get you seven or eight hundred a year as, as an average. So that—that that gives you what my life was like for thirty-three years. And you know, to do that, I traveled extensively. I've been to forty-two countries. Uh, Every state but Alaska, Um, you know, every province in Canada, uh, on the move constantly. Probably didn't put in as much travel as Robert Ripley himself, but all over the place, looking at high and low, auction houses, magazines, television shows, antique stores, anywhere and everywhere to find Ripley's, believe it or not, items. Now, I said stuff a little earlier, you know, Ripley's has some very significant historical pieces, has some very significant sports pieces, science pieces, hopefully something for everyone. It's a hodgepodge. The overriding theme is that it's odd, unusual, hopefully unbelievable. Most items, unique, one of a kind. Not always, but, you know, that's a, a buying criteria. You know, I I want something that the average person hasn't seen, maybe hasn't even heard of, but when they see it, they're going to go, wow, I've never seen that before. And they're going to remember it as something unique to the Ripley's museum experience.
0: In a way you uh, really stepped into the shoes of Robert Ripley. Did you ever feel like, my gosh, this is pretty much like what he did himself.
2: Well, yeah, to an extent. But like I said about Alec Rigby last week, I didn't draw the cartoon. You know, I ended up being the editor of the cartoon. I did an awful lot of writing in my, my career with Ripley's. But the company is based on an illustration. I can't, I can't draw a circle. You know, I can't, <laughs> there's no art in me whatsoever. So I knew I was in the Ripley mode following his style, but I was never Ripley because I wasn't doing the, the hardcore, you know, the centerpiece of the work.
0: Right. Right. Well, as I read through, uh, buying the bazaar, um, your subtitle, by the way, the confessions and adventures of a compulsive collector. I like that subtitle. Um, I, I discovered who I believe, uh, to me, was a real Indiana Jones. His name was H.M. Lissauer, and uh, you know who he was.
2: The H.M. stands for Herman Mark. Um, Some people called him Mark. I don't know if anybody called him Herman, maybe his mother, Uh, but I always called him Sir. He was Mr. Lissauer. I I knew him for years and years and years, but never was, you know, first-name basis. He was a concentration camp survivor. His family escaped eventually out of Europe and went to South America. And in South America, he became personally interested in Indigenous people and started a personal collection of, you know, tribal artifacts. A few years go by, they moved to Melbourne, Australia, And again, Australia is a little more primitive still than North America. And he gets interested in Australian art. And his family buys a coffee plantation in New Guinea. And from an early age, he starts, you know, making regular trips to New Guinea and the South Sea Islands. And initially, he's buying this stuff for himself, like Robert Ripley. And when I went to his house, he had a pretty good personal collection, too. But at some point, he makes the decision that, you know, I want to buy these and sell them. And he dealt with museums all around the world for his entire life. He would go into the the wilderness six months of the year, buy, 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 come home for a month, catalog, 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 take photos, make measurements, write descriptions, and then with 17 binders, divided by country and, uh, you know, artifact content, he would travel the Western world, selling out of these catalogs to museums. And he found Ripley's before I was there, so from the early 70s, he's involved let's let's call it 30 years i I don't remember exactly how many but for 30 years twice a year he would visit the ripley odd office and i would spend the day looking through 17 big huge binders putting little yellow stickies saying yeah i'm interested in that one i'm interested in that one i go through all 17 before i'd commit on anything and then you know once i've been through every binder Go back and look at the stickies, see some similarities. Okay, I don't really need that because it's similar to that one, so get rid of that. And narrow it down uh, to something in the neighborhood of, you know, $50,000 would be a typical purchase day with uh, Mark Lizauer. And over the years, you know, probably an average of, you know, maybe 150 items a year uh, bought by him. And, you know, they together probably are much more than the the actual Robert Ripley collection because we bought an awful lot of stuff from Mark Mm Lazzar. Fascinating, fascinating gentleman. Uh, Imagine traveling around the world with, you know, multiple suitcases in the days of airline tickets. You know, it looked like it was 12 feet long sometimes. And he was a strict dietitian, uh, Jewish kosher. Um, all kinds of health issues, and did this for oh, I don't know, fifty years, oh, maybe wow. more. Wow, you know, maybe, maybe more. Fascinating, fascinating man. He's written a short biography. It actually was. Uh, it started as an oral project uh, for uh, concentration camp survivors. Uh, but the city of Melbourne, Australia, where he spent most of his life, now has a museum. Uh, of what was left of his collection that he hadn't sold uh, and he uh, and they produced this biography that's really a fascinating read
0: and you mentioned in your book that he spoke a dozen native languages on top of eight European languages yeah um
2: never never ceased to amaze me every every time I was in his company, there I'd learned something new that I, how did I not know that before <laughs> you know like I didn't know he'd lived in you know Venezuela. i didn't know he'd been to antarctica you know whatever fascinating guy definitely the most interesting person i've ever met
0: can you uh, give us an example or two of uh, some of the um, unusual items that you picked up from him i noticed you did mention bird feather money what the heck is bird feather money
2: <laughs> well it comes from the tiny little island of santa cruz part of the Solomon Islands in the South Seas, not too far from Fiji, it's, uh, you know, general geography. Uh, It is bright red. Uh, I don't even attempt to pronounce the bird's name, but uh, a little tiny red bird, you know, red like in a cardinal that uh, our audience might be more familiar with. Thousands and thousands and thousands of feathers sewn into a belt coil uh, and transferred in transactions as currency. And these can be, well, typically they're about 10 feet long unrolled, but they they can be twice that. And they're about four inches wide, so almost like a belt, but bright, bright red. The bird has gone extremely, and the value of the belt, of course, increased as they became fewer and fewer of the birds. <sighs> Roughly, typically about $5,000 purchase in my time when I was buying them.
1: Oh, and I wow. May have,
2: I may have bought, you know, five or six of them. Wow. But, you know, I've never been to the Solomon Islands myself. Mm-hmm. He went there, bought it, brought it to me in America. But uh, in my house, uh, I, again, I forgot stuff from my office, but, uh, a permanent reminder of Mr. Lazour. My wife collects all things tiger. And we have a, about a eight foot long tiger rug that's not a real tiger. It looks real, but it's not. It's actually made from yak fur made in Tibet. And uh, I don't have it on the floor. I've got it mounted on the wall. But, you know, it's one of the first things you see when you come in my house. And people go, wow, what's that? <laughs> and they learn that it's yak hair and not a real tiger. Uh, most people go, wow. You know, I didn't, you know, never would have believed it.
0: That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, you know, um, after I uh, read your book, Edward, uh, I went on eBay and I put in... Um, Martin Lissauer's name. And sure enough, I came across two items for sale that were actual documents signed by him. One, uh, a 1936 receipt of items. And then th- huh. I forget what the, uh, the other document was, but um, I think it was from 1949. But I wanted the one, you know, prior to uh, World War II. Could this be the same Lissauer or do you think uh, his father had the Uh, same name or do you think this is the same gentleman? I'm going to
2: say most likely his father had that period because he's, uh, he's only eight years old in the concentration camps in the mid 40s.
0: Okay. So this is the H.M. Lissauer. That would be his father.
2: (laughs) I'm sure it must be his father. His father, whom I never met. I met his mother uh, and, But his father had a very interesting business that I I can't even fathom today. So, you know, anybody younger than me is going to go, what is he talking about? But they cleaned and prepared animal bones to make bone buttons.
1: Mm, Wow. That's interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating. And, you know, not... Not jewelry per se. I imagine they did some, but buttons, mm-hmm. fancy buttons for ladies' clothing, uh, made out of animal bones, and that—that's mm-hmm. how the family got into traveling. Uh, the father was going around collecting bones.
1: Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Think about that one. <laughs> yeah. But I was—I was, I was going to say before you put the dates on it, you know, I don't. Well, I probably do have a couple of personal uh invoices from Lazaur myself, but Ripley's has hundreds of them because we archived every one of them, so we had a you know running running record of everything we ever bought from the man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he had the world's first handwriting. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> If you weren't in the meeting, looking at the photos, making the decision what you were buying a week later, you wouldn't have known what it was. What
0: is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the signature on this uh, document that I uh, picked up uh, is readable. You can tell that that's the name. So it must've been dad. <laughs>
2: I, I imagine it is.
0: Yeah. That's, that's just amazing. Uh, an amazing gentleman and somebody, uh, who it's been your honor and privilege to have known and worked with for so many years.
2: If I may, again, I never met the father, but uh, the, the mother literally sacrificed herself and her two children so that the father could escape the Nazis. It was him they were actually after. And he, he got out of uh, Amsterdam, where they were living at the time, and uh, the mother and the children got sent to the concentration camp.
1: Oh wow!
0: And
2: he uh, he spent some of the time in the war in England, uh, but went to South America. And when they were liberated, uh, they got on the boat and they hooked up with him. You know, five years later in South America. Mm-hmm.
0: What an incredible Again,
2: fascinating, fascinating man. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah that, really. That's an incredible story in and of itself. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, uh, one of the people that uh, I came in contact uh, with back in the late 1960s when I was researching um, the a bo- uh, for a book on the Hitler Youth um, uh, is Carl Silberbauer, who was the uh, Gestapo agent in Amsterdam who arrested Anne Frank and her her family. And so, you know, for Lissauer's story to have a connection here, perhaps to the same, you know, Gestapo official is incredible. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, if you go to the Holocaust Museum in Amsterdam, uh, the Lissauer family is listed. Mm. It was a very, very moving experience for my wife and I uh, to read his name on the wall.
0: Yeah. Oh, I could see how it would be. Sure, because you have such a personal connection, such a wonderful uh, connection. If we move on from uh, Mr. Lissauer to um, some of the uh, other folks you came in contact uh, with as you collected uh, 1,000 or more artifacts a year for Ripley's, one of the unusual items you mentioned in the book we just have to talk about, and that's John Horwood's strip of skin.
2: Well, I didn't close the deal on that one, but I consider it the very first thing I ever purchased for Ripley's. Uh, so it would have been, I believe, 1984, maybe late '83. But it was <laughs> the skin itself is a very small piece of skin. But the story was a small story in the Toronto Star newspaper that one of my associates, his name was Norm Deska saw in the paper and said, you know, this would be a really cool item for Ripley. End of conversation. Uh, I then made it, you know, my, my goal for however many days it took to find, you know, the author of the story, then, you know, get a connection to the person that owned the skin and then eventually to buy the skin. And John Horward, it's an English story from the early 1800s. Uh, was a young man, teenager, I, I seem to believe, recall, and he threw a rock at a girl that jilted him, and hit her in the head, and killed her. John Horward, uh was sentenced to death uh, for the crime, and the doctor who did, uh, you know, I don't know if it's an autopsy, but, you know, the preparations of the dead, the mortician, uh, signed off that he had done the inspection, blah, 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 on the piece of John's skin. And it's about three inches long, maybe an inch and a half wide. And, you know, in total, maybe it's got like 10 words on it. But, you know, it's got to be the most unusual bookmark in the world. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, you know, I still think it's an absolutely fascinating story. And we did that on the TV show as well. That became an episode on the Jack Palin show. Uh, but, you know, it, it's near and dear to my heart because it was the very first thing that I, I could take credit for adding to the Ripley collection. Oh wow.
0: <laughs> That's certainly a milestone. Oh, yeah. of
2: it is most of its career. I, I can't say where it is today, but uh, it was on display in Australia for many, many years.
1: Mm hmm. What an unusual find! Yeah.
2: Now, oh yeah, Gary- and again, ah, I mean that doesn't fit anybody's. You know, maybe it belongs in a medical museum, I guess. Uh-huh. But yeah, you know, it, it's not something you're going to see anywhere else. But no.
0: yeah, of no. course, of course, you'd expect to see it in the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Yeah, that is exactly the type of thing you'd expect to see. Yeah, uh, the stuff that you would uh, want to see in a museum of Ripley's um, Gary I'm going to um, we're going to talk uh, in a moment about um, Edwards uh, favorite city where he opened a Ripley's museum but I'm going to see if you can guess what city that is I'm going to give you a few clues all right um, it's known for its music okay um, really a, a jazz is one of the uh, types of music but the blues also and mm-hmm. it's got great food New Orleans? Uh, oh, I didn't even give you all the clues. What do you mean, New Orleans? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the gumbo from New Orleans. And it has Brennan's. I've been to Brennan's. It has history, which I love. And it has... A little bit of everything. Uh, yeah, and downright strange stuff. Um, one of the things that uh, Edward didn't mention in his book uh, when he was talking about New Orleans were the cities of the dead. And I'm sure you visited the cities of the dead, right, Edward?
2: Well, I've been to most of the graveyards in and around New Orleans. And they're called Cities of the Dead because they have very elaborate uh, mausoleums built above ground. The water level is so high in New Orleans, uh, you know, the city itself is literally at sea level that they can't dig into it, so they build up from it. And they're in very nice, neat rows, and some of them, you know, look at least like car garages, if not full houses. So it's nicknamed the City of the Dead because, you know, you can say, you know, fourth row over, sixth row down and find so-and-so's grave. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, they. I remember. And, uh,
2: and, you uh, know, my first trip there, my, my first introduction, I guess, is the the movie, um, oh boy, The Easy Rider, where it has the oh, scene with yeah. Peter Fox and Dennis Hopper in the graveyard. That, that's probably the first I ever heard or saw of them. But um, the very first time I went to New Orleans, I had to go to the St. Louis Cemetery. And it is a spooky place, even in bright daylight. Uh, lots of voodoo stories, lots of things left on the graves that you go, what's that all about? And, and the you know, the artwork slash architecture of the mausoleums. you know, there's been several books of them. And you, you could spend a lifetime studying them. You know?
0: The uh, tour guide that I had uh, mentioned that they seal these uh, these uh, what are they mausoleums or tombs or whatever. Yeah, they seal them up. They seal them up for one year and a day, and then uh, they poke an iron rod through to open them and uh, let some of the really lethal gases escape. And they, when they open them, um, the bodies have been self cremated.
2: There you go. Believe it or not.
0: Believe it or not. And so my question to you, Edward, is do you still rate New Orleans as one of your most favorite places in the world?
2: Well, definitely my favorite place in America. Uh, you know, Miles ahead of anywhere else, San Francisco probably being second. But um, in the world, yeah, it, it would rank pretty high. It, it's certainly a place I could go back to time and time again. I don't need to spend more than a couple of days. Uh, but I would never get tired of New Orleans and, and food and music are, are the big appeals for me. Um, world's best antique shop, uh, Bill Rouse shop on Royal Street. Uh, I've done a lot of shopping there. If anybody wants a vampire killing kit, Bill's the guy that'll find you one. <laughs> uh, you know, as a, as a tourist, as well as a, a working person, there's always something to discover in New Orleans. Uh, for sure and you know food and music huge huge parts of my other life so new orleans you know is pretty much at least once a year every year place
0: yeah i hear you i hear you and it's um, unique and unusual and um it's kind of bizarre in a way too
2: the only place you'd ever find a a president of the United States playing saxophone in a jazz club.
0: That's right. That's
1: very true. That's very true.
0: <laughs> That's right. Um, in addition to, um, wonderful places, uh, there were some incredible, um, uh, tasks being performed at Ripley's while you were there. And I know you uh, had quite a bit to do with uh, the publishing arm. We've got a number of your books you were involved with spread out uh, here in front of us as we're talking. Um, And I I had to ask uh, myself, uh, because you mentioned in your book uh, that the cartoonists had to come up with 30 unbelievable stories a week. How in the world can you come up with 30 different research stories a week?
2: Well, at at times, uh, the most recent Ripley's cartoonist named John Graziano, and he started with the company in 205 and probably within the first couple of years he started doing almost all the work himself but prior to John there was a research staff that would find it and then the artist would draw it and then Edward the editor would fuss about it and you know say it was too long or wasn't big enough and you know get everybody mad at me before it finally got printed but um full-time researcher uh, the very first one that worked you know, hand in hand with Robert Ripley, his name was Norbert Perlroth, and he worked for the company for 52 years. I mean, oh, wow. amazing! Like again, uh, probably right beside Mark Lizauer is one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. But he uh, he literally went to the 42nd, uh, the uh, God. yeah, I think it's I think it's 42nd Avenue uh, in New York, the big big main library. Uh, there's actually a Norbert Perlwoff reading room now because he went so often, but he went to the library five days a week, eight, nine hours a day, picked books off the shelf and read. And he read in like 12, 13 different languages too. And, you know, he would come into the office only on Friday, plump down however many stories he found, the 30 being the minimum, and say, you know, here's what I found this week. And Norbert, uh, you know, was truly, truly uh avarice reader, but an amazing guy. And, you know, every day, every week, he found what he needed to find. Uh, hard to imagine. After him, uh, I hired a lady named Karen Kemlow, and she was a would-be journalist. And I'll always remember that her... Uh, her little test to get the job was she did a a story on tattoos, which at the time, you know, very few people had like today, but you know, it was a constant challenge. And, you know, if you came in to the office with only 30, you're in trouble because that's a minimum, you know, and the editor isn't always going to like them and the artist isn't always going to like them though. His opinion's not as important as the editor's, (laughs) but, you know, typically we would look at maybe 50 items a week to, to call the 30. Mm. And, you know, it's a tough, tough full-time job, but a real fun job. Yeah. I mean, the person who gets that job stays there because they love it.
0: Yeah, they would, you know, ha- there's, well, they would have There's only to.
2: been seven artists in the cook history of Ripley's, but there's only been like three researchers. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so,
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, churning something out uh, like that, uh, like they did the old uh, time serials back in the nineteen thirties, uh, one a week. Um, it was fun working on them, but uh, you know it was not easy either. Um, uh, coming up with um, meeting ted- uh, deadlines and oh, yeah. producing the good we,
2: we would meet every Friday afternoon at uh, you know the same time. And there's no ends if there's what's about it. You you have to come in there with the goods every Friday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I doubt anybody ever worked nine to five at Ripley's, no matter what their job was. It's a full-time gig.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I believe that. And like you say, uh, people were spending uh, 40, 50 years and uh, enjoying, well, I don't think you enjoy every moment of it, Edward, but uh, probably. Oh, uh, <laughs> no,
2: definitely not every moment. Not every moment,
0: but, but uh, quite a few I, of them.
2: <laughs> and, I just mean, you know, that uh, late night television was, was always a source for Ripley people. I mean, somebody had to stay up till one o'clock in the morning and watch Johnny Carson every night. I mean, you know, you. Uh, it, you know, it never, never was anywhere near a nine to five. I, I probably worked <laughs> a 70 hour week every year of my life.
0: You know? <laughs> and that's why you have so many incredible memories at this time. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, Edward, we've, uh, still got, uh, some more things we'd like to, uh, run by you all things, uh, Ripley. So, uh, if we could uh, get you to return for a third episode then we could start off with your um, telling us about uh, the portrait of uh, Mona Lisa that was made from toast.
2: Well, <laughs> again, I'm always willing and happy to talk about Edward. <laughs> you know, <it's> my favorite <laughs> subject. Oh, <okay>. is, <laughs> well, is well, too far behind it, but uh, Mona Lisa from toast. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, All right. You want me to?
0: all right' we're, we're gonna save that one and uh so Edward uh, we're gonna talk about all things Edward once again right Gary
1: absolutely we we're so excited this is uh this has been a lot of fun oh you're not all right come. well uh, hold on folks we still got more to come but oh, until yeah.
0: next time oh unfortunately we got another episode coming up Gary I'm Richard
1: and I'm Gary and this is a continuing incredible story
0: I hope they didn't burn that toast.
2: That's how they make it.